a little bit, and we're going to be even more, talking about the gospel. The book you hold in your lap or the page your electronic device has turned to is referred to often as the gospel. And that's become kind of a religious term, but it just means good news. So we're going to begin to take a look at the good news. And a question we need to ask ourselves, is that book to us? Is this experience to us really good news? Is it really good news or is it a weight and an obligation that we feel we have to carry around and an obligation and responsibility that we feel we have to fulfill? Is it really good news to us? Is it good news so that you get up in the morning and you can't wait to open it to read the good news? I get something else delivered to my door. It's called the bad news. It's a newspaper. (laughs) And there are days I don't want to open it because I know I'm not going to find any good news in there. And yet there's just something about our, our flesh that's drawn to bad news. We want to watch it over and over again. And yet we have within our possession, we have within us, good news from God. We're going to begin to take a look at it. We're going to look at it from a number of different angles because it's part of what we're going to talk about so much next year. Back in the end of the 60s, in the beginning of the 70s, which immediately I lost a bunch of you, there was a TV show on called A Family Affair. Anybody remember Buffy and Jody and, okay, all right, and Brian Keith was their uncle and, you know, their parents died or something and he was a, you know, wealthy guy and took them in and he was struggling with how do I raise some small kids and, you know, and they were really cute and and all of that and we're not going to talk about that show, but we all, all of us come from a family of some sort. And, and there's just something when you take family together, and of course, this time of year, some of you are going to have in your home or go visit family. And there's family and there's family. My wife and I saw a few weeks ago in a, in a, in a um, store where they were selling, you know, novelty things. It was a guest towel that had sayings written on it. And one of them said, family drama colon, the gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) And I've read many of those and forgotten them, but that one I've remembered. (laughs) And many of you know what that means, and at this time of year. So when we're part of a family, there's an interplay that goes on. There's relationships. I remember handling a law, handling uh, when I was a lawyer in the last law firm I was in, uh, there was a running litigation between the firm I was in and the biggest firm in the city because they represented three boys in the family and we represented the three girls. And they literally spent their father's estate, which was hundreds of thousands of dollars, on legal fees over 10 years fighting with each other. And then their mother died. And it started all over again. It went on for 15 years plus. In fact, when I left them, it was still going on. And they would find things to fight about. They had to make up. And I'm sitting at a negotiating table one day, and they've got this bank of expensive lawyers on one side, and then we're on the other side, and the girls are with us, and the boys are with us. And I suddenly realized, this is nothing more than sitting over their, their, their kitchen table, 
while they were having breakfast or dinner and they're fighting over stuff now in their 60s or so, just as they did when they were 6 and 10 and 12. The issues are bigger and a lot more expensive, but the dynamic is still the same. So when you're raised in a family because of all kinds of things, and some of it's good and some of it's hmm, not so good, but it affects us and we operate out of that. Well, we're going to take a look today at a family, a family that Jesus uses as an example of a number of things. And Luke chapter 15 is going to tell us a little bit about this family. But before we get into the family, I want to give you a little background because it's important to understand what Jesus is telling us about this story. And it's a parable, of course. So we're going to go to verse 1. Because there's a series of parables in here, and we're just going to look really, read through one of them. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Isn't that interesting? I was reading over that yesterday, and it struck me. All the tax collectors, that wasn't, they weren't the highly respected people. They were hated. Why? Because the tax collectors were Jews that were working for the government, for the man. They were collecting for the Roman government, and they made their income because they were authorized to collect whatever they could get. And whatever was owed to the government, they paid to the government. Whatever they could collect beyond that, they kept for themselves. So they were hated because they were gouging their own people. They were also hated because they were serving the government that the people hated that was oppressing them. So they were hated for at least two reasons. So being a tax collector was even worse than being an IRS agent to us today. And if one of you is an IRS agent, bless you, you work for the government, thank you because we need you to collect the money, otherwise we wouldn't be able to enjoy some of the things that we enjoy. But it was very different in those days. And the sinners, they loved to be around him and listen to him. Wow. The sinners, the prostitutes, the, the thieves, the liars, those that were cheating on their husband or their wife, those that were the, the dregs of society, not just in people's eyes, but even violating God's word, they loved to be around Jesus. Wow. Let that sink in a little bit. Why? What was there about him that they loved being around and not just being around him, but they loved listening to what he has to say? Now let's kind of fast forward to today because the Bible says we are the body of Christ in the earth today. So we are Christ in the earth today. And the question is, do the sinners still love drawing near to his body and listening to what his body has to say? Hmm. They drew near to him, they loved being around him, and they loved listening to him, but I strongly suspect they don't love being around the church and listening to what we have to say. 
I know that because this place would be filled. It would be filled and they'd be waiting in the parking lot to get into the next service and we'd probably have to have multiple services beyond the two that we have today. If somehow when they heard us, when they were around us, they felt the way they did when they were around Jesus. It's not because they're any worse today. They, it's, it's not because of the sinners. It's got to be something about us. And yet we are his body in the earth today. Somewhere there's something that he was doing or he had that we may have, but we don't recognize it or we're not doing it. Now, in the next verse, it says the Pharisees got very upset. The Pharisees got very upset at him. Look at this, what it says. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And so Jesus began to tell stories. And he tells three stories. The first story is about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And he realizes when he does a count one day, there are only 99 of them. One of them is missing. And he leaves those 99 until he finds the one sheep that was lost. Now think about that. From a business point of view, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Because if you leave the 99, because they're sheep, if you leave the 99 that are here to go find the one that's lost, you may lose some more of the 99. They may wander off or something may come in. So it, it, it makes much more sense to say, all right, I've lost one of them, but I still got 99. So that's, uh, my, my business is 99% successful. That's pretty good. So I'll let the one go because I can't take the risk of going to track him down. I've got to keep what I have. Then he tells a story about a woman who has some coins and she loses one of them and tears the whole house up trying to find that one coin that was lost. I mean, she's probably a woman that likes everything just where it is. She likes everything just stacked the right way. Everything, And she tears the house apart to find this one lost coin. And then he moves into the story that we're going to talk about this morning. So we'll read this story together, and then we'll go through it. Story you're all familiar with, I'm sure. Start in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. Don't forget, it's two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, give me the portion of the goods that fall to me. So he divided them. He divided to them his livelihood or his, their inheritance. And not many days after that, the younger son gathered all together that he'd been given and journeyed to a far country. And there he wasted his possessions with wasteful or prodigal living, the New King James says. But when he'd spent all of it, there arose a great famine in the land and he began to be in want. And when he went, so he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Now this is a Jew going to feed pigs because a pig was, was untouchable to them. 
which is very demeaning, very humiliating. And he's out there, it says in verse 16, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods or the cobs that the swine were eating, but nobody gave him even those. He's now at a point where he's so desperate he would compete with the pigs for their food, but they didn't even give him that. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, and we'll look at that later, he said, wait a minute, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And, and I perish with hunger. I know what I'll do. I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's got his plan worked out. So he gets up and he comes to his father came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf here, kill it, let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and he's now alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. But now his older son was out in the field. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked them, What do these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come, because he's received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf, which was a specially reserved animal for special occasions. And the, son was, the older son was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you, and I never transgressed your commandments at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood and with harlots, and ki- you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. This is a story of a family of a father and his two sons. So we're going to walk through this a little bit. This son, who is obviously the younger son. Now, just to understand in those days that when a father died, his inheritance generally was not spread equally among his sons. There was a law that carried over even into England called the law of autoprimogenitor, which basically means that the oldest son inherits most of, the, most of it. And in fact, in England, it was two-thirds to one-third, and then it was even other issues that it could be broke down. And we don't need to get into that this morning. But the point is, the oldest son basically inherited the majority of it. And so this younger son grows up and begins to develop an attitude. Now understand this, and this is, I've, this, I've seen this happen in other generations, where you have a father who's earned it. 
Now, we don't know where he got it from, but we assume the father owns everything. He's earned all this. And these young, these young boys are grown up under a father who is obviously very wealthy, has lots of possessions. And so they grow up not having to earn what they wear, not having to earn the food that they're eating, not having to earn the car they drive, not having to earn the, you know, the, the credit card that they have, not having to earn the things that they get to enjoy. They just have them because their father earned them. And, and the father lets the children enjoy all these things. And what begins to happen in this young son, and actually we'll, we see it in the older son, is they begin to feel entitled to something that's a gift. And if you are entitled to something and you get it, it's no longer a gift. A gift is something that's freely given not something that's earned. That's what Romans 4 talks about. It says, talks about our salvation is a gift from God. It's not like wages, which is something that you earn and you're entitled to. And the way you know that you feel you're entitled to something is you get upset when you don't get it. So when you don't get what you think you're entitled to, you begin to get upset. You begin to get resentful. You begin to get envious of others that have it. You begin to get jealous. And this is what's going on here. This younger son is beginning to think somehow he's entitled to something. And because of that, he decides to do what he wants to do with it. So he chooses to take what he thinks he's entitled to and go out on his own and and live his own life his own way. So he comes to his father and he requests this of his father. And his father, for whatever reason, gives him in advance his share of the inheritance. It's interesting because I never noticed this until I was going through it again yesterday. He says he gave to them. So he takes the inheritance and he distributes it to his two sons. The bulk of it goes to the older son. and We see that at the end. And the, but the, a portion goes to the younger son because what he's decided... Now, remember, the, the opening for this is he thinks he's entitled to something that he's never had to earn. And so because he's entitled to it, he thinks he has certain rights in himself to be the master of his own fate and in charge of his own life. And he feels constrained serving his father because there's an older brother that he's serving under. And so he doesn't like this. He thinks, I'm young, I'm full of life, I have full kinds of potential, and this situation in my family is holding me back from what I know I'm capable of and what I know I'm possible, uh, I can po- I have the potential that's within me. And so he, he, he works all this up in himself and comes to his father and basically demands what he's entitled to. And the father gives it to him. And the son goes out to make his way in life, full of his potential, full of his self-determination, the master of his own fate, the captain of his soul, going out to make his way and prove to his father and to his brother what he can do. And he did. And he went out there. He never earned this, so he had, didn't have a value of it. He, didn't, he never learned the skill of what it takes to earn it, he'd only learn the skill of what it takes to spend it. And he goes out there 
and he burns through the entire inheritance. And while he's spending the inheritance, it's at a time of great prosperity in the land. Things are going well. So he's very confident because most likely that's all he's ever known. He's just known good times. He's just known when the stock market's going up and interest rates on the bank are going up and interest rates on loans are going down. Of course, that doesn't happen that way. But that's all he knew. He just knew it's good times. Time to enjoy myself, prove who I am. And because he's young, he'd never been through a hard time. He'd never been tested. And about the time he's blown through the inheritance, the economy turns around. And jobs dry up. And food begins to become scarce. And there's a famine in the land. And now he comes face to face with what he's done. He's come face to face with the thing he put his trust in, which he didn't really understand, has now run out. And now he's got to decide what he's going to do. So the first thing he does is figure out how he can solve his own mess, how he can take care of himself. See, there's still self at the root of this. I'm going to prove my own way. I'm going to, decide, I'm going to prove what I'm capable of. I'm going to go out and I'm going to walk into my destiny that I'm going to make for myself. And now it's gone south. It's gone sour. Things haven't turned out the way. So what he's going to do is he's going to take the mess he has now and he's going to solve it himself. And he's going to go out there and he finds a job. And the only job he can find is with a pig farmer. And because of who he is, that he is not, he doesn't have any training, he doesn't have any skills, he's assigned to the lowest job is to slop the pigs. Again, for a Jew, a horribly demeaning thing. And he's so hungry, he's becoming envious of what the pigs have to eat. That's pretty low. I mean, he's down in the mud watching the pigs chew their slop, and he wants what they're eating. Never in his wildest imagination, while he was home serving his father, did he ever dream that he could come to that place. Never once when he walked out of the family household and goes out on his own did he ever dream that's where he was going to end up. Never once while he was spending the inheritance that he had did he ever dream that he would end up at this place down literally in the slop with the pigs envious of what they were eating. And it gets worse because even the pigs wouldn't share their food with him. Nobody shared his fair food with him. Nobody would help him. Nobody cared about him, even at his lowest point. Well, almost nobody. Almost nobody. And you know, it's a nice story so far, but that's where we've been. Say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not out flopping pigs. Wait a minute, I'm not... I haven't taken my father's inheritance and walked away. Oh, yes, you have. Because the life that's in you, you didn't earn. The breath you breathe every few seconds, you didn't earn. The life that was conceived in your mother's womb, you had nothing to do with. It was a gift from God 
entrusted to you so that you would take that life that he gave you and use it to honor him, to serve him, and to love him. But each of us took that gift that God gave us, whether you were young or older, and we left that opportunity and went out on our own to make our own way, to live our own life the way we wanted to live it, to make our life our mark in the world. The next verse, we skip some in telling the story, is so important. It's so telling. Verse 17. It says, And when he came to himself, some translations say, When he came to his senses. Sometimes in life it takes a moment when your eyes get opened and you realize how low you've gotten. Sometimes it takes a moment. Something has to dawn on us when we realize where we are, when we realize what we've done. In the Bible, that's called conviction. It's awakening up and realize, what have I done? Where am I? I thought I could do this. And look what I did. I got myself starving in pig slop, trying to talk a pig into feeding me what he's got in his mouth. But he came to his senses. Sometimes it takes something in our senses to wake us up. Sometimes when you have somebody that's an alcoholic or they're hooked on drugs, they will never come out of it until they hit bottom, until they end up in the pig slop, until they realize what they have done. Because the, the, the root of all, of all addictions, the root of all, uh, whether it's alcohol or drugs or pornography, the root of all of that is a deception the deception that somehow I can control this. If you ever talk to an alcoholic, they'll say, oh no, I, I can stop drinking if I want to. I can stop doing this if I want to. I can stop doing this if I want to. And that makes them feel better. And so they'll associate with other people that are like them because they make each other feel better. And the only way they're ever going to get out of that is to come to their senses. Their senses. Literally, sometimes it takes an intervention by the family where you sit down with them and you don't give them any way out. Because when you're deceived, we're full of excuses and rationales. Ultimately, it's not my fault. It's because my wife nags me or my husband's not doing this or because I did this. It's my situation in life. All of these things become excuses for why I do what I do when in reality, I've chosen to get into that and now I can't get myself out. And it takes something to dawn on our senses that I can't control this anymore. It's out of my control. And that's when the door opens for help. And you may be sitting out there and saying, I'm not an alcoholic. I've never been hooked on drugs. I'm not into pornography. And there may be some of you out there that are in one or more of those things. But you can say, but I'm not hooked on anything. Yes, you were. Sin. Sin. Just stop sinning and find out how much control you have. Never ever read through, read through the Sermon on the Mount. 
And then at the end of that, say, I will never do any of that ever again. And watch what happens. Because the harder you try not to, the more you'll do it. Because you can't overcome it in yourself. And why? Because we walked away from God and we're all of the root of all sin, and we'll get into this as we get further into the gospel. Most of what you and I consider sins are the fruit of sin. It's not the sin itself. Sin itself is not lying, it's not stealing, it's not adultery. Those are sins. But that's not the root of sin. The root of sin is self. I'm, and you go back to, I think it's in Isaiah, uh, where, 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 or Ezekiel, I forget which one, where he talks about Lucifer when he rebelled against God. I will make myself like the Most High. I will ascend to heaven. In three verses, the first pronoun I is at least six times. I will do this. I will make myself. I will make myself. So the root of all sin is exactly what this younger brother did. I'm going to take what is, what's mine, what I'm entitled to, what was entrusted to me, and I'm going to make what I want out of my life. And that's what all of us were doing until at some point you came to your senses. It may have been here. It may have been watching some program on television. Somewhere where the gospel, the reality of what you were doing, hit you in such a way that you realized where you were. You may not have understood a lot of it. He didn't understand a lot of it. All he knew is he didn't want to stay where he was. And because of what he knew of home, he came to the conclusion that it would be better to go home as a servant than to stay where he is. Now let's look at what he comes up with. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, oh, that's so good, he couldn't change anything until he came to himself. Came face to face with himself. He thought when he left home, he could, he could conquer the world. He thought when he left home, he could really make something of himself. And now he's come, when he finally came face to face with himself. I won't let that sink in. Because at the root of us, down seed inside of us, is, is I. I'm going to do this. I can work this out. I've got to, say, I've got to, I've got to make this change. I've got, and we've got to come to the place where we come face to face with me. It's like the old Snoopy cartoon. I've met the enemy. It's me. <laughs> Most of the trouble that I've ever dealt with in my life wasn't the devil... It was me. The devil would take the opportunity that I gave him, but it was me. When, and God couldn't help him, his father couldn't help him, until he came to himself. He realized what he had done, that what he thought he could do, he failed at, and what he never dreamed he was capable of is the very thing that he did. And so here's what he does. He's still operating on his own. He figures out on his own his own plan of salvation. He figures out his own solution. 
I know what I'll do. He says, I remember my father's servants, his servants. At least they've got three square meals a day. And they sleep in a nice bunkhouse. I know what I'll do. I'll go home and tell my father that I've sinned against him and I've sinned against heaven and I'm not worthy to be called his son. And I'm going to ask if he'll hire me as one of his servants because they live better than I'm doing right now on my own. So he gets up. I don't even know if he cleans up. And he starts heading back home. That's the first right step he's made. Now look at what happens. Because we're going to shift attention now from the younger son to the father. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. Stop there. In order for his father to see him a great way off, he has to be looking. Now understand, in that culture, for a father to go out looking for a son was completely contrary to their culture. Because the father was the one that was honored. The father was the one that they would come to. The father was the one that they would, they would never, father would never do that according to their custom. And, but the father's not concerned with culture. This father's not concerned with custom. He's not concerned with what anybody else thinks. He just knows one thing. His boy's out there. He doesn't care what the rest of the clan thinks. He's out there probably every day looking at the horizon. Waiting. Notice he didn't go out and get him. Because it wouldn't have done any good to go drag him and bring him back home. Because the desire to fulfill himself would still be in him. And eventually, when he got his stomach full and began to feel better, whether he physically went out there or not, his heart would go back out there. He had to come to the end of himself. And when he did, now he was ready to receive what his father had for him. And he made the right choice. He began to come home. And the father's looking, waiting. No reason to believe any particular day that he would see him. But he doesn't care. He continues to look. He's looking at the horizon. And he sees this, 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 this thing. You know, you know and when you look at the, in the summertime out over a field and you, you, know, you see the effect of the, of, the, of the heat and it begins to wavy lines out there and you can have mirages of things. And he sees this and uh, doesn't get any closer. It's not him. Day after day he goes out. And then this one day he's looking, looking, looking. Do you know how, patient, how much patience that must take? We don't know how long it was, but it had to be long enough for the economy to turn around. It had to be long enough for him to get this job, to get tired of this job, get so hungry that he wouldn't stay where he was. So it has taken some period of time. And the father's out there every day looking, every day looking, every day looking. Yes, things are well at home. Yes, everything's fine, but he's not, it's not right because that son's still out there. And he's looking, and he's looking. And this day, he sees something, says, you know, I wonder if it's that mirage again. But wait a minute. It's getting larger. Wait a minute. It's getting nearer. Wait a minute. I recognize that walk, I think. Is that it? Yes. Notice what it says. While the boy was still a long way off, 
look what happened. The father had compassion. Had compassion. What motivates the father, what motivates the father in this whole story is right there. It's the compassion for that son. The love for that son. And notice what he does. When he saw him, he felt compassion and he ran. A father, the head of a household, would never do that. It was undignified. And to run with those robes, he would either have to take the outer robes off or tie them up. They called girding their loins. They would pull it up between their legs and tie it on their belt so that they could run fast. That was very demeaning. That was not, that was not, not the kind of thing that the head of a household would do. But he didn't care what people thought. He didn't care what it looked like to anybody else. That was his boy. And he couldn't wait till he got here. He had to run out and meet him. He ran. And when he saw him, he threw his arms around his neck and hugged him. And now notice what the boy does. Because he's probably been practicing this all the way home. The boy starts on his speech. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, I was teaching this on the radio years ago, going through this, and it dawned on me, wait a minute. He was never his son because he was worthy. He was his son by birth. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, remember the rest of the speech? The rest of the speech is, I want to work as one of your hired servants. And look what happens. Verse 23. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Now, this is what's going on here. The father's run out. The servants must have come out too. The father's thrown himself around the boy. He's kissing him. He's hugging him. While he's kissing him and hugging him, the son's going through his speech. Father, I'm not worthy. I've sinned against you and against heaven. See, see, this is key. He understands what he's done. He doesn't come and say, Father, I made a terrible mistake. He doesn't say, Father, I made a terrible miscalculation. He doesn't say, Father, I was wrong. He says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. How did he sin against his father? He took the inheritance that he was entitled to. The way he sinned against his father was by walking away from him and choosing to go out on his own. That's a little hard for us to understand. But in that culture, uh, the boys was to work under the father, and then as the father passed on, the older son would take over, and the younger son would work under him. What was the sin was to go out on his own, to take his life into his own hands. He said, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. And now he starts into the rest of his speech, but while he's doing this, the father's hugging him, kissing him, and talking to the servants. Now get this, the father never hears his speech. The boy's talking. He's, 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 he's confessing it. He's apologizing. He's, telling him, he's about to tell him what he's going to do. The father's not listening. The father doesn't care what he's saying. You're going to see later. All the father cares about is my son that was lost is found. 
That's all the father cared about because there was something missing in his heart when that son was out there. And he tells the servants, go, prepare a party. Get the fatted calf, the one we've been preparing for a special occasion, because this is the most special occasion. And bring it out and lay out the best we can get. Get the robes, take a robe, put it on him. Take my ring, put it on his finger. Get special shoes for him. We're going to treat him like a special guest that's come home. And, th- and the boy's trying to get his speech out. Because the boy had figured out what he needed to do to be accepted back in the family. The boy had figured out what he needed to do because his mentality was still the same mentality that he had when he left. He just knew he couldn't do it. And he comes back and he's trying to explain to the father, oh, listen carefully, he's trying to explain to the father why he should take him back. And the father doesn't care what he's saying because the father doesn't care doesn't need to be motivated to take him back. All the father had to do is see him coming. Throw a party. Because my son that was dead is now alive. My son that was dead to me, separated from me, is now home. He's alive to me again. This is the story of a father, but Jesus is telling us to the Pharisees about what his father's like. He's trying to get it across to the Pharisees, he is to you and me, that until we come to him through Christ, we're lost. We've taken our life into our own hands. We're out there on our own. And when you come to Christ, you don't need to come a certain way. You don't need to come on your knees standing. All that matters is you come. All he cares is you come. All he cares is you come. Because his heart was filled with compassion. His heart was filled with compassion towards you when you walked away. His heart was filled for compassion for you when you were in the pig slop. His heart was filled for compassion for you when you turned to come home. His heart is filled with compassion for you today, wherever you are, whatever you're going through. Jesus is telling this parable to tell them what God's heart is like. But there's another brother. Let's take a look at him. This is the other side of the kitchen table. Verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, well, your brother has come because he's received him safe and sound and your father has killed the fatted calf. Verse 29. But he was angry. The father runs out. The father against whom he sinned ran out to throw his arms around him and kissed him. The brother, he didn't sin against his brother. The brother's angry because his father's killed the fatted calf and is throwing a party for his no-good brother who's a spendthrift, who doesn't deserve to come back. And if he does come back, he ought to come back on probation and maybe serve in that. But he, he doesn't deserve to be treated this way. So the brother was angry. You get angry again 
when you think you're not getting what you're entitled to or somebody else is getting away with something. And this is what he's upset about. I've been faithful to you. I've done everything you wanted me to do. I've served you faithfully every day. And you've treated him like this. He's not getting what he deserves. See, the older brother had the same problem. The older brother had the same problem. He's just the other side of the coin. The younger brother thought he, what he got he deserved and so he wanted to take it and go do what he was going to do on his own and prove himself. The older brother who didn't need to do that because he was going to end up owning everything anyway, he also thought he, didn't, he, got, he, he earned what he had. And he earned the right to keep it and to prosper in it because he was so faithful to his father and did everything he was... He was a good doobie. He was in church every Sunday. He gave his tithes every week. He read his Bible every day. He went through his prayer list every day. He did all the things he was supposed to do. And this person that's been a pimp or a prostitute, they've been on crack cocaine, they come in, get saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and God loves them as much as he loves me. We don't want them in here. They'll change the atmosphere. They may sit in one of my in my seat. And we better get it clean before I sit in it. He was angry. Angry at his father. When his father goes out, it says, and pleaded with him. His father's not even angry at him. For the attitude he has. Pleads with him. And says, son, don't you understand? You already have everything. Why are you so upset at this? Why are you so upset at a fatted calf, a ring and some slippers, and a robe? Why are you so upset at what I'm doing for your brother? Because notice the... We're not going to take the time to read it through, but we read it through earlier. Notice the older brother doesn't refer to his younger as his brother. He says, this son of yours. He's looking his down his nose. And he says, son, don't you understand? Your brother was dead. And he's alive. He was lost. And he was found. If you look at each of these three parables, there's a verse in there with a, with a lost sheep. When he brings the lost sheep back, it says there was joy in the household. It says when the woman found the lost coin, there was joy in the household. And when the father's son comes back, there's a celebration in his household. We began by saying, why is it that the sinners, the prodigal sons, those that have taken the opportunity of life, the opportunity to serve God, love God, worship Him, honor Him, and they've squandered it, and they're out in society today, caught up in trafficking of drugs or trafficking of sex or, or they're caught up in alcohol they're caught up in the sin of this world they're caught up even if it's just others because there are other ways to get caught up There's, you can get caught up in riches they're caught out there they're caught 
They've wandered out there and they've squandered this opportunity of life, which we all have squandered. And the Father's heart today is searching. He knows them. He hears the cry in their heart at night. They may not even be crying out to God. They're just crying for help. They may be shedding tears at night. They don't know how to get out of where they are, but he hears them. He hears them because he's a father and he's looking, he's waiting. But when they wake up and come to their senses, where are they going to come? They were comfortable coming to Jesus. They came to him and listened to him. They loved hearing from him. And the ones that got upset that he was hanging out with them were the church people. The older brothers. Wait a minute. We've kept the law. We've done what we were supposed to do. We read our Bibles. We come to church. We give our tithes. We, we do other things that are good. We, we, we do all these things. How come they get loved as much as we do? Because what we're enjoying, we didn't earn either. The older brother's inheritance, because it's inheritance, it's something he didn't earn. It was a gift given to him. And he failed to treasure that it was a gift entrusted to him from his father. So the question we need to ask ourselves, do the sinners enjoy coming here? Do they even come? Would they enjoy being here? If they walked in the door today, if they just happened to stumble into Faith Christian Center today, if they stumbled into you at work, if they stumbled, and they may be all around you at work, would they enjoy coming? Would they enjoy being with you? Or when we get saved, we pull away from the world and like gathering around one another. You understand that's not why we're here. We have eternity to be together. We're here together to strengthen ourselves, to strengthen each other, to, to, to create a, an atmosphere of worship. But our assignment is not to be in church. Our assignment is to go into all the world and to preach the good news. This is our sanctuary of safe peace and love. And why is it, or do people feel coming in here that they're loved as much as they felt when they came to Jesus? Remember, he's our head and we're his body. Somewhere in all of our lives, to some degree, there's a disconnect between the head and the body. And we're going to begin to talk about that as we close out this year and go into next year. Because I believe with all my heart as we begin to allow the Holy Spirit to make this adjustment in our lives that we're going to see things here beyond what you could ever dream. Because when we line up with God's purpose, when we line up with doing what God wants God's ways, then God's power, God's glory, and God's love will begin to flow through us. Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus was that they be strengthened by the Holy Spirit with might inside of them so that Christ might actually dwell in them by faith. That was not his prayer for individuals. That was his prayer for the church, including the individuals, that Christ may actually live in the church. Imagine that. 
live his life through it. And he goes on to make clear what that is, that being rooted and grounded in love, we might come to know, together with all the saints, how open and wide his love is, who he, who he will accept. Christ's love embraces people you and I may not embrace. Christ's love is open to people we would look at and say, my goodness, they're this and they're that, and they're doing this and they're doing that. Yes. But his love is big enough to put his arms around them and have compassion upon them. And somehow they instinctively knew. People can know whether they're loved or accepted. They can feel it. And somehow they knew when they got around him, they were loved. Jesus never, never endorsed what they were doing. But he accepted and loved them always with the purpose of bringing them back home to where they belong, never leaving them where they are. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today as the body of Christ here at Faith Christian Center. We're asking two things. First of all, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see how much you've loved us, that we would come to realize that we've all been that younger son. You entrusted life to us and we wasted it by trying to do things on our own, and we still struggle with that. Trying to measure up, trying to trying to earn your love and approval, trying to be the, the servant in your household to be, earn what we get from you. Help us to realize that the story we heard today is your heart towards us. That you love us beyond what we can begin to imagine and the proof of it is with all of our mess and all of our failure and all of our pride and all of our pig slop you've put your arms around us and you've kissed us and you've brought us home to the extent we have the attitude of that elder brother Father forgive us because in your eyes and in your nostrils that must smell worse than the pig slop of the younger brother but we're encouraged because you came out and pleaded with him to come in and enjoy the party. So, Father, if we're like that older brother and we have this attitude that we're better because we've done this and we're faithful and all this, open our eyes to see that it's all your compassion and it's all your grace. For we desperately need to know that in our hearts so that we can begin to share that love, your love, your love that loves the unlovable with this world that's around us. We can't do that in our own strength and power, but only by the power of your Spirit. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name.